Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. I want to begin with this. One of the most dramatic moments, certainly in the Bible, but maybe in all of human history, took place in an environment that we have come to know as the upper room. It happened toward the end of Jesus's ministry. Essentially, his disciples were coming to Jerusalem and they were going to celebrate Passover together. And Passover was kind of a festival that revolved around this meal. It was where the Jewish people remembered the last meal their ancestors ate when their nation was in slavery in Egypt, some hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. You know, they had been in Egypt for 400 years. Started out as just one family that later became an entire nation. And all they had ever known, their whole history since the beginning of their nation, was that they were slaves. And they had prayed and prayed and prayed to their God. And for 400 years, their prayers went unanswered. You know, for us, it could be four days and we're going, is there a God? For them, it was 400 years that their prayers had seemed to go unanswered. But then finally, God sent them a deliverer, Moses. And on the day of Passover, Moses said to the Israelites, tomorrow we're leaving town because tonight an angel of death is going to pass over the land of Egypt and kill every firstborn male in every single family that does not have the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And so the Israelites, taking Moses at his word, slaughtered a lamb, had a meal, and put the blood on their doorposts. And if you know the story from the Old Testament, that night the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt, that's where we get that term Passover, and took out the firstborn sons of all the families who didn't pay attention to God's command. So finally that got Pharaoh's attention. And the next morning he said, okay, Moses, you and your people, you win, your God wins, just get out of here, get out of town. And so that was the last meal, the last supper, the last time that Israelite families gathered in Egypt. And the next day they packed up everything they owned, plus everything the Egyptians gave them, and they left Egypt and headed to what would be known as the Promised Land. Now, fast forward 1,400 years after that event, And Jesus is going to gather with his disciples to have the Passover meal. Now, they had done this before, but this time it was different. There had been a time when they gathered for the Passover meal and things had been great because Jesus was like a rock star. Jesus was a celebrity. I mean, he was a cultural icon. Thousands and thousands of people gathered to hear him speak. And the disciples, they're feeling like, hey, we're on the left and right hand of this guy. Things are going great. There's a lot of momentum, right? The crowds are getting bigger and bigger and the miracles are getting bigger and bigger. But as they were about to gather for what we now call the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, things weren't going so well. Okay, the momentum, it kind of turned around at that point in time. There there were rumors that there was a, a group of people coming after Jesus, They were trying to isolate him from the crowd, trying to get him alone so that they could arrest him and accuse him of all kinds of things. And the disciples knew that if Jesus went down, 
they were going down too. So they were a little concerned. And then Jesus began talking about his death and being taken out. And, and they were just sort of, sort of filtering all that out, I think, because in their way of thinking, much like our way of thinking, if God is with you and he's working in and around you, things are getting better, right? Because wherever God shows up, there, there's more certainty, not less certainty, right? But they found themselves at a time when things were just not going well. In fact, Jesus told them, we're going to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and you guys need to be ready. When we go to Jerusalem, things are going to get really, really bad. And of course, they're like us. They're thinking, so why are we going there? It was as if he had a death wish. It was as if he was going to walk right into the jaws of death. Things are going to be bad, guys, when we get to Jerusalem. So follow me. And they're like, what? Why? So they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem and they stop and they wait for the sun to set. And then Jesus sends two of them into town to meet this mysterious man who takes them to a mysterious place. And somehow Jesus has prearranged Passover, but he never told his disciples about it because this was the time when he wasn't even sure he could trust them. And as it turns out, he couldn't. He didn't want anyone to know where they would be because they would be isolated from the crowds. They would be vulnerable. So they sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of night. Not a big celebration, right? No people shouting or all the other things that they were used to experiencing. They sneak into Jerusalem and they go to this home. And they go upstairs and they gather in an upper room. And it was just strange. There was no certainty. And if that wasn't bad enough, Jesus begins the conversation this way. I'm in Mark 14, verse 17. It says, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. One, he says, who is eating with me. Oof. That kind of punctuated the insult. I mean, to eat with someone in that culture is much like eating with someone in our culture. It would be like inviting somebody into your home and saying, by the way, I know that you're going to betray me. Ouch. I mean, they're in the most intimate setting possible in that culture. And he says, one of you who has chosen to gather around this sacred table to celebrate this amazing thing God has done, one of you is going to betray me. Well, it says they were saddened by this. Some versions say disappointed. And one by one, they said to him, surely not I. Surely not I. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. In other words, God had already predicted this earlier in the Bible. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. You know, this book, the Bible, is full of stories and narratives written and taking place in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty. In fact, I would say this, as we in our families and as a nation and as a culture face uncertainty like we've never faced before, this is the perfect place to run. Because your favorite Bible story, the story you were raised on, the story you love to hear over and over again, your favorite passage of scripture, your favorite psalm, perhaps even your favorite proverb if you have one of those, it was written during and reflected a time 
of extraordinary uncertainty. You know, most people never think about this, but it's true. I've been reflecting on this this past week. Most of what we find in Scripture was written in environments of extreme uncertainty. I mean, this is not a book about rich people having fun. This isn't a book about things went great and then Monday they went even better. When Tuesday you got a job and, and Wednesday you got a raise and Thursday you got... 400 likes on Facebook and and Friday my kids all became professional athletes and went on to medical school on a scholarship. Those kinds of wrinkle-free life things and and then they lived happily ever after and there was no divorce in the land. Now it's not in there. It's not that kind of book. Hear me on this. Every single narrative, every single passage, every single thing that we draw hope and security from, all of those come from troubled times. They come from the lives of people who discovered that in the midst of uncertainty, God was still certain. In the midst of uncertainty, when you couldn't even trace God's hand, when it seemed like he was absent to the 10th power, they discovered that God was still trustworthy. Boy, if ever there was a time for us to pick up this book right here and read it, it's now. In the midst of this coronavirus, in the midst of this economic downturn. You know, this book is where we find a story many of us are familiar with uh, about a teenager, a teenager by the name of Joseph. You know, not Mary and Joseph, but Joseph in the Old Testament. As you know, he, he had some problems with his older brothers. And suddenly, Joseph finds himself in the bottom of a well. And above him, he hears his brothers having this conversation. You know, should we sell them or kill them? Uh, I don't know. Let, let, let's sell them. Nah, let, let's kill them. Yeah, I grew up with older brothers. I was the youngest, so I was the guinea pig for all kinds of experiments, right? I was the victim of practical jokes, locked up in cabinets, even forced into the dryer and tumble dried until my hair was like a static nightmare. I get that. So listen, I realize you may have sibling rivalry and there are some issues at home over an inheritance or she wore my blouse and didn't iron it and threw it back on the bed and blah, blah, blah. I realize that it's not fair and all, but Joseph is in the bottom of a well for crying out loud. I mean, do do we sell him or do we kill him? And you read that story and discover that, believe it or not, the Bible says in that moment, God was with Joseph. And then you flip over, you read a story about King David, who eventually the Messiah would come from his lineage, and he's awakened one day. And I know you have problems with your kids, like maybe your son stays up all night playing Fortnite or your daughter wants to get a tramp stamp. I don't know, whatever it may be. But David is awakened one day to discover that his son has raised an army and is about to invade the capital city to conquer him and replace him as king. (laughs) Again, we've had trouble with our kids, but an army to destroy his father? And as you read that story, you discover that God was in the middle of that, that God was with David. Well, then there's this story that most of us heard growing up about a mother who had a baby son. Like any mother, she dearly loved her son. But she was told that Pharaoh had decided to murder all the baby boys because there were too many Israelites in the land. And I realize there's so much emotion around babies and children and and so many prayers are prayed for sick children and too many of us in ministry have buried too many children. I get that. But here's a mother who wraps up her newborn son 
puts him in a basket and shoves him out into the Nile River. As if to say, if it's between the crocodiles and the Egyptian butchers, I'll take my chances with the river. And you read the story and you discover that God was in the middle of all that. The little baby was found. They named him Moses. He became the deliverer of the nation of Israel. But before she knew the end of that story, where was God in that? Do you see where I'm going with all this? And and that story of Moses is actually a foreshadowing of another baby who would be rescued from a similar fate as Mary and Joseph discovered that King Herod, in his jealousy of his kingdom, heard a rumor that there was a baby being born who would grow up to be the Jewish king. So he decided to just wipe out an entire generation of little Jewish boys. He sent his butchers into Bethlehem and the surrounding area and murdered every single baby boy. Now, Joseph and Mary, they escape of all places back to Egypt to save the baby Jesus. And as there was weeping and wailing in the land, you discover that God was right there in the middle of all that. And somehow, he still had the whole world in his hands. Every single story, read them for yourself. But every story where it seems like things have spun out of control and all the momentum is is going backwards and, and all of God's activity has ceased and the bad guys won and the evil king won and the gods of the pagan empires had won. You read those stories and you discover that in the midst of all that extraordinary uncertainty, there is God and nothing has changed and he's still got the whole world in his hands. Let's go back to Mark, Mark 14, 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, and here comes the shocker, right? Jesus is about to say, oh, oh, by the way, this isn't what you think it is. You've been eating the Passover meal since you were little bitty since you were kids, but from now on, when you eat it, Jesus said, this is my body. This is my body, a body that's about to be broken for you. And they're like, what do you mean? This is your body. What's with all this death talk again, Jesus? Stop giving us all this negativity. I don't want to hear it. I mean, if you're from God, then things have to turn around. If you're from God, there needs to be more certainty, not less certainty. Well, then... He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he foreshadows what's going to take place a few hours later when he's going to be nailed to a cross and die in front of their very eyes. And then they leave that room and they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane where there's so much drama. I just don't have time to get into it all. And eventually Jesus is arrested. And along the way, the news gets worse. In verse 27, he says, by the way, not only will one of you betray me, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, Peter, he's following along. He's thinking, okay, enough of this. Enough negativity, enough bad news, enough about arrest, betrayal, death. There is no way we're going to allow this to happen because God's with you. And if you're the son of God, this isn't how the story goes. 
there, there's more certainty, more faith, more miracles, more good news, more intervention. And I think Peter kind of speaks for all of us in verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Because that's not how the story is supposed to go, Jesus. Even if everybody abandons you, I will stick with you to the end. Now, if you know the story, later on that day, that very same man with all that faith would cower down to a young girl who accused him of being one of Jesus' followers. Peter would deny Jesus three times. Now, here's my question for you and for me as we continue to experience extraordinary uncertainty with this virus in our families, in our jobs, with our children, with our government and state leaders, our economy, our retirement, our ability to go to school, with all of that uncertainty, here's the question. Can you trust God? Is it possible that God is still active, still accomplishing his purposes when there's no indication of his activity? Can you trust that he's still active in the world when everything seems to be going dark and backwards? Can you continue to embrace faith in God as a personal, loving, heavenly father when there's no evidence of this actually in your life? Any kind of activity of God that you can identify in, in your world or the world around you? See, your answer to that question will determine your response to the continuing uncertainty in our lives. I mean, here's the dilemma. And this is extraordinarily important, I think, especially for Americans who equate God with prosperity. I mean, we equate God with prosperity, don't we? I and mean, why shouldn't we? I mean, for most of us, we've been pretty prosperous. So we equate God with forward motion. We equate God and God's blessings with physical, tangible blessings. I mean, that's been the experience for many of us for generations. But I imagine if you were to go to the disciples, the men who were gathered at that table a few months later, and you asked them this question, guys, when was the darkest moment as you followed Jesus? When did you have the least amount of hope? When did you begin to wonder, did we make a mistake in following this guy? I mean, maybe he's another false Messiah and we've wasted our lives. I think they would have said to you, it began when we gathered around the dinner table that night and he promised us things would get worse and, and not only would one of us betray him, all of us would fall away. And within a few hours, all of us had fallen away. And then hours later, we saw Jesus arrested. We saw him tried. We saw him crucified. The darkest hours for us, it was those hours when we thought we had completely wasted our time. And God isn't up to anything here. And then, if we were to ask those same men, when in your time with Jesus do you think God was doing his greatest work? Was it healing the lame guy? Or, or what about the blind guy? That was pretty cool. Or maybe it was standing outside the tomb of Lazarus when he came forth. I mean, he had been in there for four stinking days, pun intended, that he came out of that tomb. I mean, what was the time when you saw that God's presence was most with you, when, when God was doing the greatest work? You know what I think they'd say? That wasn't any of those times. It was actually in those same hours when it seemed to us that he was doing the least, when it seemed like he was absent. It was in those darkest hours when God was doing his greatest work, when it seemed like he was completely inactive, 
he was the most active. Because those dark hours were the epicenter of the salvation of mankind. I mean, those would be the hours that for thousands of years, people all over the world would look back to and rejoice in God's goodness and grace. But if you had asked us in the moment, we would have said game over, wasted time, not a man of God. Yeah, it reminds me of an ancient Chinese parable about a farmer who owned a horse and had a son. Well, one day his horse ran away, and so the neighbors came to express their concern. They said, we're so sorry. That's such bad news. How are you going to work the fields now? And the farmer replied, yeah, good thing, bad thing. Who knows? In a few days, his horse came back and actually brought another horse with her. So then the neighbors rejoiced and said, what a good turn of events. How lucky you are. I mean, now you can do twice as much work as before. And the farmer simply said, good thing, bad thing. Who knows? The next day, the farmer's son fell off the new horse, and broke his leg. Well, the neighbors were deeply saddened, went to the farmer and said, now that your son is incapacitated, he can't help you around here. That's terrible. The farmer replied, good thing, bad thing, who knows? Not long after that, news came that a war broke out and all the young men were required to join the army. So all the villagers were sad because they knew that many of their young men would never return home. But the farmer's son couldn't be drafted because of his broken leg. And so all of his neighbors were envious and said to the farmer, how lucky you are. You get to keep your only son. And the farmer's response was still the same. You guessed it. Good thing, bad thing. Who knows? You see, the worst, most painful time for the disciples, the time when it seemed the darkest, the most uncertain, when it appeared God had abandoned them all, that was God's greatest work in history. It's what we celebrated last Sunday on Easter. We equate God's presence with his tangible blessings, with circumstances being all nice and rosy, but we don't see the big picture, do we? This is a difficult message, I think, for us as American Christians. And yet it is our story for those who have chosen to follow God, for those of us who have decided to place our faith in Jesus, that God seems to take broken things and do his most amazing work. And that God seems to wait till the last minute to do this work. That God seems to take broken up, hopeless situations and show up in a special way. Not the way we would choose because we'd never allow things to get as bad as oftentimes they get. But this is God's way. That the greatest things begin in the biggest messes. The most amazing works of God are generally launched at a time of personal or national brokenness. But the question for you, the question for me is this, will we maintain faith when we can't see his hand? As our faith begins to stutter and shake and waver a little bit and we look around at our circumstances and begin to doubt, now more than ever, this is the place to go. Because all these stories, including the story of our salvation, were birthed at a time of extraordinary darkness and extraordinary uncertainty. Now, if you're thinking, okay, pastor man, so, so what does this truth do for me today right now? I mean, at least Trump's sending me 1200 bucks. I mean, knowing this truth, it's, it's not going to help me get a job or, 
or get my kids back in school. It's not going to change anything about when I can go back to work or even if I'm going to be able to keep my job. It's not going to change anything about my prodigal son, my prodigal daughter. It's not going to make me well. Okay, you know what? You're right. You're right. And there's never been a time as a pastor and church leader that I've wanted to figure out faster how we could do practical things to help people more. But here's what I know. Although that idea, that insight, that truth from Scripture doesn't change anything about your immediate circumstances, here's what it does. First, it allows you to embrace uncertainty with the certainty of knowing that God's still in control. That although life is uncertain, family's uncertain, the economy's uncertain, this virus is uncertain, the world seems to be uncertain, God, though, is not uncertain. He's still got the whole world in his hands. And if you buy into that, that's huge. It's beyond huge. It's huge, okay? Huge truth. Knowing this truth and embracing it, even if it's just with our fingernails holding on, it keeps us from making decisions that'll complicate the difficulties that you're facing even further. It allows you to go to bed at night and discover that there's a way to have peace, even in the midst of the storm. It'll teach us to keep an eye out for the activity of God that may take us by surprise, as it often took the characters of Scripture by surprise. So let me just encourage you to hang on to and embrace the simple truth that even though life is uncertain, God is not uncertain. And He still has the whole world. He still has your entire world in His hands. So let's review. What does knowing this repeated theme from the Bible do for you? Gives you faith for today, eyes to see God at work, peace to sleep at night, protection from despair, wisdom to make good decisions, and hope for the future. Now, you may be thinking, okay, it's, it's easy for me to sit up here and say this because I don't have to jump into your home. I don't have to jump into your circumstances. Uh, I don't have to get up tomorrow morning like I know many in our congregation are doing and wonder, what am I going to do today? I mean, I'm not dealing hands-on with the loss of a loved one or a family member or a friend who's in the hospital battling for his or her life. I realize our circumstances are all very different. So what gives me the confidence to sit up here and cast a positive vision of faith and encourage you and paint my picture of what may appear to be pie in the sky by and by? What enables me to engage in this kind of a pep talk so that you will go out and maintain faith? But well, let me just say this, it's not my life, okay? It's not my life. It's something deeper than that. See, the foundation of my message today, it, it's not my life, it's the lives of all the saints who have gone on before me and before you. And not just the stories here in this book, we're talking millions and millions of stories from millions and millions of Christians who have suffered far worse than you or I have ever dreamed of suffering. Now, let me tell you a story I heard the other day. It's about an extraordinary, courageous man of God. His name was the Reverend Otis Moss. And he shared this story a few years ago, just before the National Prayer Service in Washington, D.C. He shared it amongst a small group of people. Reverend Moss was an African-American born in the middle of Georgia in 1935. When he was 16 years old, he was orphaned, tragically lost both of his parents. So he was a 16-year-old African-American male in middle Georgia in 1951. 
Let's just say he saw the worst that this country has had to offer in a long time. But as a teenage boy, he put his faith in Jesus. And then at 19 years old, he decided he wanted to go into the ministry and be a preacher. Eventually, he was able to connect with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He marched with him in Selma. He marched with him in Washington, D.C. And he became a part of that core group of men and women who experienced things that hopefully nobody in this country will ever have to experience again. He witnessed tragedy after tragedy, the loss of a dear friend. He experienced the, the division of family, he experienced racism and hatred that most of us, we can't even imagine. And yet through all that time, he maintained extraordinary faith. And as he was sharing this story, and he was getting into some very emotionally troubling experiences he had been through. In the middle of a sentence, he just stopped. And I know this sounds so much like a preacher story, but I promise this is exactly how it happened. He stopped in mid-sentence, stared off into space for a moment. And here's what he said. And we know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Okay, that's my best black pastor voice right there. He was quoting the first half of Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things... Now, let me just speak for Reverend Moss. He had seen some serious all things. The all things that fall into his all things are nothing like the things that have fallen into my all things or probably the all things that many of you have experienced. We know in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. So I'm not telling you this story based on all my all things. I'm telling you there are hundreds of people over thousands of years in this book right here who have said the same thing. And there have been millions of people throughout history who have been in worse straits than us, who have experienced horrific all things. And they've all said the same thing, that the Bible is right, that God doesn't lie, that Romans 8.28 is right and true. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, Reverend Moss didn't finish the verse in that little aside he took, but it goes like this. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. God has purposes. God has purposes we don't know and we don't see. And we all need to understand that when life is uncertain, God is not. And he's still got the whole world in his hands, which means he has your world and your family in his hands. He's got the COVID-19 situation and your personal finances and all the things that are worrying you to death in his hands. And if you'll embrace that truth, it'll give you faith for today, eyes to see God at work, peace to sleep tonight, protection from despair, wisdom to make good decisions, and hope for the future. Folks, I don't know what the future holds for us as a nation or our families, any more than anyone else does. But here's what I do know beyond a shadow of a doubt. Although life is uncertain, God is not. God is good. And he's got the whole world still in his hands. And regardless of what we see or don't see, we have the opportunity to embrace a faithful God. 
Even in the midst of circumstances where it's impossible to see his hand or catch a glimpse of his purpose, God is still in control. He's still on his throne. He's still a God that we can continue to trust. Even though our lives are uncertain right now, he's not. He's still got the whole world in his hands. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, for some of us today, this truth is a lifeline. It's our only lifeline. And maybe for others of us, it's next week that we're going to need this or or next month we're going to need this or or this summer we're going to need this because only you know the future. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of uncertainty, the uncertainty right now, the uncertainty to come, that we would be people who would cling to and hold on to your promises. Not looking to our ability to understand and interpret circumstances, not our propensity to judge you based on what you do or don't do, but that we would be men and women who declare you faithful, God, in spite of what we may see or experience. Father, we confess together that we believe that you work in all things and you work through all things, that you show your hand strong in all circumstances, that you're in control. You're the God of certainty, even when life is uncertain. And you've still got our whole world in your hands. So Father, as we leave here today, give us wisdom to know how to express that, how to talk about that with our families, how to talk about that maybe with our colleagues at work, how to live that out. I pray, Father, that we would discover how to find peace in times that seem to provide no peace. I pray for our fathers who are leading their children, leading their families through uncertain times. Give them wisdom to know how to lead. And for the single moms and single dads who have the extra difficulty and burden right now of being the only provider or the only one in the home with the kids, would you give them wisdom to know how to lead their kids, to embrace a God who is faithful, even when times are so uncertain. And God, as a church, would you lead us, guide us to know what steps to take, to know how to respond to what's happening around us. And God, I pray that we would go to bed every single night with the confidence that you have not changed one iota, that you are still a God who can be trusted and who works through broken things and difficult times. And through those, oftentimes you do your greatest work. God, I pray that you would right now in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of this crisis, that you would do a work that would blow us all away, that you would lead many people to yourself, that you would lead your people into a deeper relationship with yourself. And I pray all this, in the matchless and amazing name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen.